to be spending the summer doing character studies. Uh, it's kind of a break from the work that we've been doing in Isaiah, and we've decided to begin our series of summer studies and characters in the scriptures with uh, the character of Philemon. And as we approach the study, I want you to pretend that you don't know anything about what's in the book of Philemon. I realize that may not be a stretch for some of you, but... But as we uh, work our way through this uh, short little book, almost verse by verse, we will kind of see Paul's theme beginning to unfold and uh, develop, and I think you'll find that intriguing. I thought it would be uh, delightful to start with the book of Philemon. After spending uh, nine months in one book, I thought it would be fun to take a book we could study in one day, just for a little change of pace, and plus this is a very fascinating story. And we'll see as Paul writes this letter to Philemon that he knew just exactly what kind of letter to send. He knew exactly what Philemon uh, needed to hear from him. I remember listening to a Focus on the Family broadcast one time and James Dobson was talking about the numerous requests that they get at Focus on the Family for printed uh, resources. And occasionally things get slipped up in transmission. He indicated that one time a, a grandmother had written to them asking for resources on how to become a better grandparent to her grandchildren. And by mistake, they sent her the book, Sex Begins in the Kitchen. Uh, but uh, Paul had slightly better judgment than that, and we'll see that this letter is just exactly what Philemon needed to hear. Now, I want you to start just with me in verse 1, and notice how Paul introduces uh, this letter. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. The thing I want you to notice about this is that as Paul begins this letter, he does not introduce himself as an apostle, which is his characteristic pattern in every other uh, letter that he writes in the New Testament. When Paul introduces a letter by describing himself as an apostle, it is his way of reminding his audience of, of the authority that he possesses in Jesus Christ that when an apostle spoke, he spoke with the same authority uh, that Jesus Christ spoke with. In other words, the words of an apostle, because they come from one who has been taught and instructed and authorized by Jesus Christ, have the same force and the same authority as teaching that comes from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. But this indicates right in the very first phrase that Paul is not intending to lean upon his authority in his appeal to Philemon. Rather, we'll see as the argument of the letter develops that his appeal to Philemon is not based on Paul's apostolic authority, but it's based on his relationship with Philemon. It's an appeal that's based not on authority, but it's based on love and relationship. Timothy is also included in the greeting. It's written to, the rest of verse 1, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. You notice the letter was addressed not just to Philemon, but also to the church that met in Philemon's home. This letter was intended not to be read just by Philemon, but to be read publicly in the church that gathered there in Philemon's home. That's confirmed by the last verse in Philemon, verse 25, where Paul's concluding words are, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word your there is plural uh, in Greek. He describes Philemon as his dear friend and fellow worker. That this tells us two things about Philemon, that Philemon was somebody that Paul loved. The word that's translated dear friend is formed from the Greek word agape, 
referring to God's agape love for us. And Paul says to Philemon, as I introduce uh, my appeal to you, that I want you to know that you're somebody that I love. And not only was he loved by Paul, but he was also respected by Paul. He describes Philemon as a fellow worker, as a colleague in ministry, as a co-laborer, a co-worker in the ministry of spreading the gospel and building the church of Jesus Christ. And I think that's a significant lesson in that in terms of our influencing uh, of people, that when we need to appeal to others around us in some way, that the appeal is much easier for people to respond to if it is delivered with respect and with love. And we see that Paul sets this tone right away in his relationship with Philemon. We don't know anything more about Aphia, who is described as Paul's sister in the Lord. Uh, it's also addressed to a man by the name of Archippus. The only thing we know about Archippus is that his name means the master of the horse. That's totally irrelevant. I have no point to make with that, but that's what his name means. But he is described as a fellow soldier. I think what Paul is alluding to is that he recognized in Archippus that he was someone who understood the nature of the spiritual battle that we as believers are engaged in. Archippus was someone who, understand, who understood the truth that every square inch of the universe at every moment in time is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And Archippus was a man who had learned how to put on the armor that had been provided to him by the Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians 6 and to engage in direct warfare with our supernatural adversary. He was a decorated soldier in spiritual conflict, and Paul commends him for this as a fellow soldier in spiritual warfare. There's an indication at the end of this verse that uh, Philemon's home was, was host to a church. reminds us that in the first three centuries of the church, until Constantine became the emperor of, of Rome in about 313 A.D., that there were no such things as church buildings. Uh, Christianity was an illegal religion in many parts uh, of the empire, and they were not allowed to build buildings of their own, and so the church met in private homes. Philemon evidently was a man of some wealth, and his home was large enough to provide a gathering place for one of the churches that met there in Colossae. Philemon, as we discover from comparing this letter with the letter to the Colossians, lived in the city of uh, Colossae. And this church that met in his home there in Colossae was probably one of a number of, of house churches that existed in that uh, city. Uh, probably the closest parallel that we have in, in, in our society to what the first century church was like was our growth groups. These are, these are house churches who are pastored by lay uh, pastors, very much like what these early first century churches were like. And so this letter was delivered to Philemon's doorstep and intended to be read there for the first time uh, to this church. So remember that as we go through here, that as Philemon listened to this letter being read for the first time, he would listen to it being read along with Aphia and Archippus and the rest of the church that met in his home. Paul then issues his standard greeting in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul reminds of Philemon and the church there in his home that the two great assets, the two great treasures that we possess because of our relationship with Jesus Christ are the grace of God, all of the resources and the riches of, of Christ available uh, to us, all of his strength, his courage, his capacity, his sufficiency, his adequacy for life to answer that deep hunger that we have to be people who are capable and adequate and sufficient. We have all of the grace of God to satisfy that hunger of the heart. And also available to us in Christ is the peace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
uh, his inner peace and stability and equilibrium to stabilize us, to hold us steady, to give us an inner sense of balance and harmony when there's so much around us that, 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 that drives us to, to be anxious and to be fretful and worried and, and panicked and, and hysterical. In the face of those needs, we have the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ to call upon. Now then, as Paul characteristically does, he begins his letter in verses 4 through 7 with a mention of the fact that he prayed frequently for Philemon. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. You cannot pick up one of the epistles of Paul. In fact, I believe that probably Galatians is the only epistle in which Paul does not begin with some word about his prayer life on behalf of of these churches. Paul was a big-time believer in the effectiveness and the power of prayer that is offered up on behalf of other people. Almost every letter contains a reference to how frequently and regularly he interceded on behalf of those in these fellowships. Gene just gave us testimony and witness to the effectiveness of prayer that is offered up on behalf of, of wayward children. And Paul was a believer in that. As J. Oswald Sanders said, it is possible to move the arm of God through prayer alone. And Paul believed that. Uh, Jim Dobson's uh, father died about uh, 15 years ago, and shortly before his death, uh, Dobson asked him what he would like on his headstone, the epitaph he would like on his, on his headstone. And his father thought for a minute and said, uh, what I would like written on my headstone was, were these two words, he prayed. He then mentioned that he asked his mom the same question. She had a good sense of humor. He said, Mom, what would you like to have on your headstone? And she said, what I'd like to have written on my headstone was, I told you I was sick. But, uh... <laughs> but Paul refers to the frequency with which he prayed for Philemon and the church that gathered in his house. And he tells us in verses five, uh, at verse 5 why he was thankful to God in his prayers. Because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Notice Paul uses the word here. He did not know Philemon personally. The church in Colossae had been established by a man by the name of Epaphras, who had met the Lord and been instructed by Paul in the city of Ephesus, and then Epaphras had taken the gospel to inland to the city of Colossae. If you have a moment at some point, you might want to look at a map of the Roman world and Paul's missionary journeys, and you will see that Ephesus was a coastal town, and Paul spent a good deal of time, almost three years, in the city of Ephesus, in the, in the hall of Tyrannus, teaching and preaching the word of God. Epaphras was one who sat under his teaching and then took the gospel and planted this church in, in Colossae. And, and through Epaphras, Paul had heard about the life of this Philemon and his character. Paul says, there's two things I've heard about you that cause me to thank God always. Notice he thanks God for this, which is an indication that Paul understood that even though he is praising Philemon for the quality of character that he sees in, in him, he understands that ultimately God is responsible even for the faith and the love that we exercise toward him and toward others. But there are two things that excited Paul about Philemon. One was his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the second was his love for all the saints. And you think about that for a moment. Realize how gloriously simple uh, the things are that God expects of us. All he is really looking for from us is faith, dependence, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and a growing love for all of the saints. If he sees us growing in faith and in dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ and sees us growing in love for other believers, he is delighted. Gloriously simple. I remember reading about an interview that Conrad Hilton 
uh, once gave on national television. And the interviewer asked him in this national television interview, said, Mr. Hilton, if there is one message that you would like to communicate to the American public, what would that be? And Conrad Hilton looked right at the camera and said, please put the shower curtain on the inside of the tub. <laughs> you know, gloriously simple message. Now, that's the message that Paul has to Philemon. This is all that God is looking for from us. He's not looking for complicated things, just a growth and dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ and in love for all the saints. And then Paul tells him in verse 6 what he is praying for. He says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. I'd like to suggest an alternate translation here in verse 6. I think if you have a New American Standard that it comes closer to the uh, accurately translating the Greek text at, at this point. But what Paul literally says in verse 6, I pray that your fellowship, or the fellowship of your faith, may become active. I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become active, effective, and powerful. The word fellowship is a word that pictures relationship, intimate relationships. It was often used in the first century to describe the relationship between a husband and a wife, a term that was used to describe the most intimate relationship in the human family, a word that Paul frequently uses, the word koinonia, to describe God's intention for relationships among members of the body of Christ. And his prayer here for Philemon is that the fellowship of his faith, the relationships that he had with other believers through their common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, would grow and it would become increasingly active and increasingly powerful and increasingly effective. I know this is something that I long for and pray for for this church fellowship, that not only would we be known as a church whose teaching is active and effective and powerful, but that we would also be known as a church whose fellowship is active and is effective and powerful. Now, Paul has a reason for praying this for Philemon. Notice what he goes on to say in the end of verse 6. Why do I want your fellowship to become active, effective, and powerful? Because... I want you to have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Now, I do not want you to miss this, what Paul is saying here. He's saying if you want to know, have a full understanding of every good thing that you possess in Christ Jesus, the path to that goal lies through active and effective and powerful fellowship. Do you see that? It's not possible to arrive at a full understanding of every good thing that we possess in Christ Jesus apart from active, effective Christian fellowship. It's the fatal weakness of monasticism. The monastic movement developed in order to provide believers with, with isolation and seclusion so that they could probe the deep things of God and come to a deep understanding of the riches that they possess in Christ. And Paul says the fatal flaw with that movement is that it is not possible to arrive at a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ in that way. It's only possible through actively relating to other believers in fellowship, enjoying the koinonia of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I remember Prince uh, Philip once was asked why he went fishing on Sunday instead of going to church. And he said, well, that's, that's simple. Uh, I can pray while I fish but I can't fish in church. That's easy. Right? 
I've had uh, golfers who have told me the same thing. Says, I can pray while I golf, but I can't golf in church. And, and I know that they pray when they play golf. At least I hear them mention the name of God frequently. So <laughs> I uh, assume they are telling me the truth. But there are contemporary forms of kind of Christian monasticism where, uh, where believers uh, may come just for worship and instruction, come late to a worship service and, and leave early and kind of minimize the contact that they have with other believers. And my question to you, if you kind of fall into that category, my question to you would be, do you, do you want to understand every full thing, every good thing, a full understanding of every good thing that you have in Christ Jesus? So the answer to that question is yes. I would plead with you to pursue active Christian fellowship because it is through that route, it's along that path, that your growth and understanding of every good thing that you have in Christ Jesus will come. And Paul, as a matter of fact, is exhibit A of this truth in verse 7. He says, Your love has given me great joy and encouragement, because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Two of the good things that God wanted Paul to come to a full understanding of were joy and encouragement. How did Paul grow in his experience of joy and encouragement? Through observing the way in which Philemon loved and refreshed the hearts of the saints. It was through his fellowship with Philemon and observing Philemon's fellowship, active, powerful, effective fellowship with others, that Paul grew in his understanding of the joy and the encouragement that was his. Philemon had a gift of refreshing the hearts of the saints. Uh, the word for hearts here that Paul uses refers literally to the entrails or to the inward parts. And it's used figuratively often in the New Testament as a reference to the seat of our emotions and our emotional life. Philemon was equipped by God with the capacity to refresh and, and to revive and to restore and to renew the emotional life of believers who came in contact with him. That's a marvelous uh, gift. We all need people around us who challenge us and stimulate us in different ways. We need those around us who challenge us spiritually, stimulate us spiritually to, to hunger after God and to seek after God and to grow in our relationship with Him. We need people around us who stimulate us intellectually and mentally and challenge us with the truth of God's Word. We also need people who challenge us volitionally at the level of our will and who, who encourage us and challenge us to righteous behavior. But we also need people around us who stimulate us emotionally. All of us know people like that. Uh, when you are with them, you simply feel better. They lift your spirits. They touch you, encourage you, refresh you emotionally. And that was a unique gift that Philemon had been given uh, by God. And Paul had, had heard about this, that he often refreshed, revived the hearts of the saints. Now, Paul begins to move into the heart of his appeal in verse 8. Therefore... Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. A couple of things I want you to observe about this. Notice that Paul says, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Paul here is referring to the fact that he had the authority of Jesus Christ himself as an apostle. And he says to Philemon, I could use that authority. It would be appropriate for me to do so. It would be proper for me to do so. It would be fitting for me to do so. 
Paul had no hesitation when circumstances required it to use the authority that he had been given in Christ to issue directives and commands and injunctions to people. Now, if God has given you authority in some sphere of life, then it is appropriate and proper for you to use that authority as circumstances warrant to issue directives. This is something that can often be confusing to believers because it's a tendency for some believers to think that, uh, that there's a contradiction between authority and servanthood. But there's no such contradiction. There was not in Paul's ministry. That he used the authority that he had been given when he had to use it, he used it to serve the people over whom he had authority. If he had to issue directives, he issued directives that were in their best interest, that compelled them to do what they should do. Notice he says in the end of uh, verse 8 that what we're dealing with here, he says to Philemon, is what you ought to do, what is fitting and appropriate and right for you to do. And when we exercise authority, it should be in that direction to compel people, if necessary, to do what they ought to do. Paul is not asking him to do anything excessive or unusual or self-centered. He is concerned that Philemon do what he ought to do. And he says, it would be appropriate for me to exercise authority that God has given me in a, in a very direct way. Yet, he says, I appeal to you not on the basis of my authority, but I appeal to you on the basis of love. And here again, we learn something very profound, I think, about influencing people and motivating people. Uh, that we see here in the example of Paul, that our initial approach to motivating people and to influencing people is not to appeal to the authority that we have over them. Always our initial approach as believers is to make our appeal on the basis of love. Not to give a directive on the basis of authority, but to issue an appeal on the basis of love. Now, it may be necessary at some point for us to exercise the authority that God has given us, but that's always a, a, a tool that we keep in reserve. Our first approach is an appeal based on relationship and love. And this often can be very uh, effective. Now, as I mentioned, it's not inappropriate to use authority when it's called upon. I remember hearing about a, a sign that was erected on a convent in uh, Southern California. And as you approach the grounds of this convent, there was this very forbidding sign, and, and it said in big black letters, no trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Signed, the Sisters of Mercy. <laughs> so it's not inappropriate to use authority in, in the right circumstances, but that never is to be the basis of our appeal. I heard uh, just a couple of weeks ago about an incident that took place in David Hawking's church. Some of you may be familiar with him as a radio program, very effective and, and capable Bible teacher. And he mentioned that his church had become concerned about the proliferation of X-rated theaters in the neighborhood of their church. And in particular, there were two mothers who had a real burden for this X-rated theater and wanted to find some way to shut this thing down because of the poison that pornography introduces into our society. And uh, the approach they took w w was actually quite brilliant. They took their two young daughters down to the storefront of this X-rated theater, and they set up a little table out on the sidewalk. And every man who came into that theater or came out of that theater, their daughters handed them cookies and free punch. And that theater was shut down in two weeks because men just couldn't handle walking past those two young girls into a pornographic movie theater. 
So appeal that's made on the basis of love often can be more effective than a directive that's issued on the basis of authority. And we'll see that that's the way it worked with, with, with Philemon. Now, Paul goes on in the middle of verse 9. He says, I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. Now, most people do not think that Paul had a sense of humor. He's often regarded as being someone who was dark and somber and kind of brooding and, and gloomy. But I believe that Paul had a well-developed sense of humor, and I think we see a flash of it here in, in verse 9. That Paul had so much confidence in Philemon and his faith and his love that he could inject some humor into his appeal here to Philemon. He appeals to Philemon. He says, now, Philemon, as I, as I prepare to issue this appeal to you, remember that I'm an old man. Remember that I'm a prisoner in Rome. You know, a last wish for a dying man, Philemon. Please grant this to me. And then he indicates finally what his appeal concerns. is, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. And suddenly Philemon realizes where Paul has been heading with this letter. Everything up to this point has been set up, and here comes the punchline. This letter concerns Philemon Onesimus. Now, Philemon probably thought as soon as he heard the word Onesimus, ah, that's that sneaky, thieving slave of mine who ripped me off and ran away. And the second thought that Philemon must have said, the last place I expected to read about his name was in the Bible. But here it is. Now, Onesimus, as we discover later, was exactly that. He was a runaway slave. Now, my guess is that uh, for some reason, Onesimus became unhappy uh, under the uh, authority of Philemon, who was his slave owner, and disgruntled and perhaps bitter. He stole money from Philemon to finance his getaway, and then he left Colossae and headed for Rome. Headed for Rome because that was the easiest place in the Roman Empire for a slave to just kind of meld into the populace, the largest city in the world at the time, and he could just blend into the populace and kind of disappear. And the reason this was important is that if a runaway slave was captured, the penalty for that upon his return was death. Onesimus knew that his life was on the line if he was ever captured and returned to Philemon, that Philemon could have him beheaded in an instant. Now, evidently, what had happened to Onesimus when he reached Rome as he ran out of the money that he had stolen from Philemon, became hungry, got to the end of his tether, and didn't know where to turn. And my guess is that he was there in Rome, not knowing where to turn. He remembered that when he was back in Philemon's house, perhaps when he was in the kitchen preparing food for one of the meetings of this house church, he heard the name of the Apostle Paul mentioned. And he overheard the prayers on behalf of this house church for Paul, who, whom he discovered through these prayers was a prisoner in the city of Rome. And he heard Philemon and others in this house church praying that he would be released from imprisonment and acquitted when he appeared before Nero. And as he huddled there perhaps on some uh, dark street corner in Rome, the thought came back to his mind, what I've heard about this Paul makes him sound like a guy you could turn to in a pinch. Because he was in prison, uh, Onesimus knew where to find him. And so Onesimus, in desperation, sought uh, Paul out and found him in his rented quarters there in the city of Rome, chained to a Roman guard. And he approached Paul. And as their relationship 
was formed and grew, Paul had the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with Onesimus. And Onesimus responded to that gospel and he invited Jesus Christ into his life to be his Lord and Savior. That's what Paul is referring to in verse 10 when he describes Onesimus as his son who became my son while I was in chains. So he says to Philemon, there's something I want you to do in response now for my son Onesimus, the one who became my spiritual son, and I became his spiritual father while I was in chains in Rome. Formerly, verse 11, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. The name Onesimus means useful or profitable or, or, or beneficial. It was a name that was frequently given to slaves. If a slave was a good slave and a useful slave, he would often get this name from his slave owner. And this was his name, useful. Paul reminds Philemon that he had become useless to you. Perhaps as Onesimus became more disgruntled with his uh, circumstances. And finally, as he left, he became utterly useless to Philemon. But now, Paul says, he has become useful again. Once again, he's in position to live up to the significance and the meaning of his name. And he says, not only is he useful to you, Onesimus is also useful to me. And it struck me that that was a, a paradigm of what God is intending to do in the lives of every one of us, or all of us that at one time or another struggle with a sense of uselessness, that it seems like our lives do not count, that we are not useful to anyone. And it is God's business to take us at that low point, the point that Onesimus reached, to fill us with his life and to restore us to usefulness and to begin to expand the roster of people to whom we are useful in God's hands. It was already happening with Onesimus, whereas before he had been useful to Philemon. Now he was useful not only to Philemon, but also to Paul. So Paul tells us in verse 12 what he is prepared to do. He says, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Now, it's striking to me that what Paul instructs Onesimus to do is to go back to Philemon. One of the interesting things, is, as a side note, that uh, we find in the New Testament is that the New Testament nowhere condemns the institution of slavery. There are plenty of passages that condemn the kind of slavery that was practiced in the United States, but the institution of slavery itself is never condemned in the pages of the New Testament. And Paul sent this slave back to his slave owner. Despite the risk involved to Onesimus, Onesimus was willing to go back to his slave owner and face the ability that he could lose his life in the process. There's a striking lesson, I think, about that, that one of the, the marks of genuine repentance in a believer is his willingness to go back and to face directly into what he did wrong. If you're ever looking for a test of genuine repentance in the heart of another believer who has wronged someone else, this is the test. 
Are they willing to go back and face directly into what they have done wrong? Are they willing to go back and to do whatever it takes for as long as it takes to set that right? Well, Onesimus was, and this is what Paul encouraged him to do. Even though Onesimus was his son, even though Paul had the love for Onesimus that a father has for his son, he was not willing to artificially shelter him from the consequences of his own behavior. But instead, as a father giving wise counsel to his son, encouraged him to go back and face directly into what he had done wrong and to run the risk uh, that was involved in that in order to set things right with Philemon. Now, Paul says, what I would have liked to do is keep him with me. In fact, he uses uh, the the pronoun I in verse uh, 13 is emphatic in Greek. This is what I would have liked to do. I would have liked to keep him here. He's very useful to me. He, He serves me. In fact, he's serving me in your place. I know, Philemon, if you were here with me in Rome, you would do the kinds of things for me that Onesimus does for me. Remember that Paul was chained to a Roman guard, had no uh, mobility. And so it was a great benefit to Paul to have men around him who had, had mobility, had, had unlimited freedom to come and go. And he says, if you were here, Philemon, I know you'd be doing for me the same things that Onesimus is doing, and he is doing them for me in your place, and I'd love to keep him here. But, he says, I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I want to observe the kind of respect that Paul had for Philemon at this point. Paul did not presume on Philemon's generosity or his hospitality or his forgiving spirit. Uh, He realized that this was a decision that Philemon had to make. And he was placing the responsibility for this decision directly on Philemon without presuming what Philemon's answer would be. Perhaps you've had this happen to you at, at some time in the past where somebody will do something actually quite presumptuous with regard to you, and then they will come up to you and say, you know, I didn't have a chance to talk to you about that ahead of time, but I knew you wouldn't mind. And the only proper response to that is, well, I do mind. It bothers me a lot. And Paul had too much respect, see, for Philemon to treat him in that way, to presume on Philemon. But instead, he gave Philemon the complete freedom and the authority to make the decision that Philemon felt led to make without Paul presuming on what that decision would be. Now, Paul in verse 15 introduces a note of of divine sovereignty into this. I want you to observe this too. Notice he uses the passive in verse 15. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you. Well, the truth of the matter is that Onesimus ran away. But Paul uses the passive here, alluding, I believe, very gently and subtly to the sovereign hand of God that even in this period of estrangement, even in this period of disobedience on Onesimus' part, the sovereign hand of God was at work. That God had purposes, even for this period of estrangement, to serve his purposes. Paul uses a very striking contrast in, in that verse. He was separated from you for a little while. Literally, he says, Onesimus was separated from you for an hour that you might have him back for good. Literally, what Paul says is that you might have him back for eternity. So what Paul saw is even when there was estrangement between believers, uh, that that Paul saw a a divine purpose in that. That even though this estrangement may last for an hour, God has plans to to bring reconciliation and restoration of relationship that will last for eternity. And then when Philemon, or when Onesimus would return to Philemon in verse 16, he would return not only as a slave, but also as a dear and beloved brother. And there Paul uses the same word to describe Onesimus' relationship with Philemon that he'd used to describe his own relationship with Philemon back in verse 1. 
that just he says to Philemon is, you are now my dear brother. So the possibility exists that, that Onesimus can become your dear friend and dear brother. Both as a man, literally in the flesh and in the Lord. I think what he's referring to there is that Onesimus will be with you in the flesh. He will be with you physically and you will have the opportunity, he says, to develop an even closer relationship with Onesimus than I have the opportunity to develop because he will be with you and in your house church and in your household for so much longer. And you have the possibility now to become an even closer and dearer friend to Onesimus than I have become to him. And then he gets to his direct appeal in verse 17. Paul says, this is what I'm doing in verse 12. I am sending him who is my very heart in verse 12, back to you. And notice again, that would reflect how much affection and attachment Paul had to Onesimus. Now he says in verse 17, If you consider me a partner, that word partner is formed from the same Greek word that the word koinonia is formed from, the same word fellowship. If you hold me as someone who is in fellowship with you, Philemon, here's what I would like you to do. Here's what I appeal to you to do. Welcome him as you would welcome me indicates here to Philemon that often the test of the genuineness of our fellowship, the test of, of the genuineness of our commitment to koinonia, is our response to a specific individual who is causing trouble for me. Paul says, what I would like you to do when Onesimus returns and shows up on your doorstep and rings the doorbell and you open the door and there's Onesimus, I would like you to respond to him just as if it was me standing there on your doorstep. The kind of grace, the kind of hospitality, the kind of forgiveness, the kind of affection, the kind of affirmation, the kind of acceptance that you would show to me if it was me standing on your doorstep. I ask you to show that same affirmation, same affection for Onesimus. Verse 18, if he has done anything wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Notice Paul indicates that reconciliation often must involve restitution. It's an important thing to understand that if there's been some kind of financial wrongdoing, some kind of property loss or financial loss involved in the sin of one brother against another, reconciliation must involve restitution. And Paul was prepared to take care of that himself. Onesimus had no resources of his own, but he knew that there was a financial debt there. And Paul says, I promise you, I will pay it back. In fact, I would have loved to have seen the original manuscript of Philemon at this point, because up to this point, the handwriting would have been in the hand of a scribe. Paul would have been dictating this letter, and a scribe in his neat and very legible handwriting would have been taking this letter down. But now Paul feels so strongly about the need to promise Philemon that he will make good on any kind of financial damages that he goes over to the table himself and takes the pen in his hand and, and scrawls this in his own hand. I will pay it back. And Paul's sense of humor shows up again there in the end of verse 19. Not to mention, Philemon, that you owe me your very self. He says, Philemon, as long as we're on the subject of people owing people, I owe you a few shillings now, but remember, you owe me your eternal soul. So let your conscience be your guide, Phil, as you chew, as you chew on this. I do wish, verse 20, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Notice the parallel with verse 7. Just as you have refreshed the hearts of other saints, revived them, renewed them. So please now, my brother, I ask you to refresh my heart in Christ. 
I am sending Onesimus to you, who is my very heart. I am so attached to him, it's as if a piece of my heart is being sent back with him to you. If you welcome him, accept him, forgive him, you will be refreshing my heart in that act. Confident, verse 21, of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. That's a striking note. Uh, again, indicates why Paul felt free to inject the humor in this. He, he had confidence that, that Philemon would do what he asked. It's a good question to ask ourselves. If we're in a position where we are now estranged from some other brother or sister in the body, uh, could Paul say this about us? Could he express the same confidence in our obedience to do whatever God asks us to do to set that relationship right? Then verse 22, he says, And one thing more, Paul doing his Columbo imitation here. One thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. In other words, again, his humor gets injected. Just remember, Philemon, if you decide not to do what I'm asking you to do, you're going to have to look me right in the eyeball and tell me why. So prepare a guest room for me. So we see that this letter of Philemon is really about what constitutes active, effective, powerful Christian fellowship. I remember hearing a short little ditty a few years ago, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. But that's the challenge, to, to, to have our fellowship characterized by active and powerful and effective Christian fellowship. You this morning may be in the position of Paul. You may be in a relationship uh, with two people who are estranged from each other. You know them both and you love them both. Ask God to use you as a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Do not be afraid, as Paul was unafraid, to challenge the sinning brother to go back and to do what is right. Do not be afraid to challenge the brother who has been sinned against to receive a brother who comes to him in repentance and humility with an open arm. Perhaps you're in the position that Onesimus was in. You're in a relationship which is currently estranged. Uh, I would challenge you to ask yourself and allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart and mind to identify any contributions that you have made to that estranged relationship and do what Onesimus did. Go back, face directly into it, and set things right. You may be in the position that Philemon was in. You have been sinned against. There is estrangement because of the actions that someone else has taken against you. And I would appeal to you to be prepared to do what Philemon was prepared to do, to welcome back the sinning brother who comes to you in repentance and humility, not to withhold forgiveness, not to withhold affirmation, not to withhold acceptance from them. Let's pray together, and then I'll ask David to come and lead us in a closing song. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this specific instruction. I do want to pray right now, dear Heavenly Father, for this church body. Pray that your Holy Spirit would fall upon us in full and rich and generous measure, that our fellowship, our koinonia as the church of Jesus Christ would not be fellowship in name only, but would be effective and active and powerful. Pray that your Holy Spirit would reconcile estranged relationships that exist in this fellowship even now. Pray, dear Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit would do his convicting work in, in anyone in this room who, who needs to acknowledge wrongdoing and to go back to another brother or sister and to set that right. Pray if there are any in this room who are in Paul's position of, of knowing two estranged brothers, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would gently guide them and lead them in the direction of, of knowing how to be a peacemaker, to bring uh, brothers together. 
And we pray that if there are any in this room who struggle with being willing to to forgive and to accept a, a sinning brother who would return to them, I pray that your Holy Spirit would melt away any resistance and give them an open-hearted reception that you would delight for them to have. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.